everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. In today's program, we examine the processes and procedures the Australian public service follow before, during, and after a federal election. Australia is a representative democracy, which means that Australians over the age of 18 vote to elect members of parliament to make laws and decisions on their behalf. The purpose of the Australian Public Service, as is set out in the Public Service Act, is to establish and operate an apolitical public service that is efficient and effective in serving the government, the parliament and the Australian people. So with that as a foundation, what is the role of the Australian Public Service at election time? Joining me to discuss this topic is an expert panel of experienced leaders from across the Australian Public Service. Dr Stein Helgeby, who had a long career in the Victorian Public Service before joining the Commonwealth, is the Parliamentary Budget Officer in the Parliamentary Budget Office, a position he was appointed to in November of 2020. Prior to that, Stein was the Deputy Secretary of Governance and Resource Management at the Department of Finance. Peter Rush is an Assistant Secretary in the Parliamentary and Government Branch in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. His branch is responsible for ministerial arrangements, machinery of government matters, the government's legislative program and public sector governance. Peter has worked in the government division of PMNC since 2004 and has provided advice on the caretaker conventions during the last five federal elections. Rena Brunsma is the first Assistant Commissioner of the Australian Public Service Commission, a position she was appointed to in May of this year. Rena joined the Commission from the Department of Finance, where she was responsible for public sector transformation, which included the whole of government grants policy and administration, shared services, ICT investment approval, government business analytics and APS reform. Rena's time with finance included a 14-month secondment to the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet as Deputy Coordinator of the Interim National Bushfire Recovery Agency, where she supported its transition to becoming a permanent Commonwealth agency. And last, but by no means least, is Katrina DeMarco, First Assistant Secretary of the Tax Analysis Division in the Treasury. Katrina's current role, which she began in February of 2020, focuses on leading teams who use data modelling to forecast tax revenue and assess the fiscal and distributional impacts of different policy proposals. Prior to her current role, she was Assistant Secretary in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, where she was the director of several cross-agency projects on policy capability, regulating emerging technology, foundational technology, and she was also the co-head of the National Waste and Recycling Task Force. Katrina joined the APS as a graduate in 2005. In 2014, she undertook a secondment to BHP Billiton, where she worked as a senior economist based in Singapore. And from 2015 to 2018, she was the Director of Policy and a Senior Economic Advisor in the Office of the Prime Minister, the Honourable Malcolm Turnbull MP. A very big welcome to you all. 
Now, before we begin, just a note for regular listeners. We do have four quality guests today, and I want to make sure that each of them has plenty of time to share their knowledge and experience with you. So perhaps just as a bit of a warning to you, we will likely go past our normal 30-minute time limit. So perhaps you might plan a few more steps on your walk or perhaps a bigger job in the garden or whatever it is that you do when you listen to Work With Purpose. So we want to get full value from our talented guests today. So with all of that, Peter Rush, if I might start with you, when a federal election is called, what does that mean for the public service and its day-to-day operations? Thanks, David. Um, what a privilege to be the first one to uh, attempt to answer a question. Um, so the, when, when an election is called, um, one of the, the mechanical things that happens is the, the House of Representatives is dissolved. Um, and when that happens, it means that the government, which is formed... Um, by a majority of members in that House, um, is no longer accountable to Parliament through that House. So um, the tradition has been around now for many decades um, uh, in Australia since at least the 1940s that um, when that happens, the government goes into what's called a caretaker mode um, and applies the caretaker conventions. And that caretaker period is just a short period Um, between the dissolution of the House and the outcome of the election, usually only takes around six weeks, sometimes a bit longer. Um, And during that period, governments restrict their activities um, and the public service adopts practices that support the caretaker conventions and protect our apolitical nature. Um, In essence, while the ongoing business of government continues, governments adopt practices which are aiming to ensure that their actions don't bind an incoming government or limit its freedom of action. Um, And that's usually evidenced in three major ways. It means the government avoids taking major policy decisions, it um, stops making appointments of significance and and we stop entering major undertakings or contracts. Um, And that just uh, means that, uh, you know, we we save that stuff up for six or eight weeks' time. So if you're a public servant and you're, and you're working, how does, how does things change? How does your life change? What, could you describe what the difference is from when you're doing your normal job when the government is in place to when you're doing your job during the caretaker period? What's, what's the difference? The noticeable difference for most public servants is that, uh, by and large, we stop providing policy advice to the government but we continue to deliver the day-to-day business of government. So services, government services, um, benefits are paid, programs continue to operate. It's not that government stops operating or that the public servants stop working. Um, It's just a slightly different mode. The caretaking conventions mostly relate to the relationship between ministers and departments, um, and it goes to our policy advice role. Right. So it's, it, is it a drop, noticeable drop in tempo um, inside the public service or is there a shift to other work that might not get done when, when government is sort of in, in full operational mode? I think, I think the days uh, when, um, or if they ever existed, uh, when uh, the public service all went to the, to the coast during the caretaker period for a holiday, uh, well, well and truly in the past, um, certainly for, for most parts of government um, and within PM&C at least, um, it's, um, it's just as busy as it always is. Yes, you do shift a little bit. 
Um, I think there will be some parts of the public service uh, where um, where their job is very focused on policy advice to government, where it will slow down and they'll get the opportunity to catch up. But people delivering services to um, to to the community um, will uh, will notice very little difference, if any. Um, and for some of us, um, uh, then caretaker period actually gets really busy. <laughs> Great. So listen, Stein, if I might turn to you, can you tell us a little bit about your role as the Parliamentary Budget Officer in the Parliamentary Budget Office before we look at it in terms of this caretaker period? Uh, thanks, David, and thanks for having me. So the PBO, as we call ourselves, we're about nine years old and we exist to support all parliamentarians to better understand complex financial issues. We do some of that in public, we do most of it confidentially. So we like to say that we're about trying to level up the playing field. Big parties, um, whether they're in government or not in government, usually have considerable support available to them. Smaller parties, independents, don't have that support, but they do have the same need to make sense of government financial issues. They're all very complex issues to handle. And so in terms of that, how, how, does, the, the, how does it change or how does your work change during a, a caretaker period? Well, a lot of what we do relates to um, providing information to parliamentarians or providing costings to them. Many parliamentarians ask us for these, uh, make these sorts of requests of us. Uh, and when we do a costing, for example, um, the approach we take is to try and replicate or to be at least comparable with what would happen if uh, a member of the government asked for a costing from the public service itself. So around two thirds of our work outside of caretaker is confidential. And it's up to the parliamentarian how they want to use it. But when we come to election time, three, three things, things change, change and change, change uh, importantly for us. The first change is that we become responsible for producing a definitive list of costings for all parties, government and non-government, and that's publicly released after the election. That includes costings done within government under the Charter of Budget Honesty and costings done by us. You don't, though, get two goes at getting a costing done. You only get one go. It's one or the other. And that, that document we produce is a record of what the parties and any eligible independents who choose to use us, um, is what they took to the election. It's a document for the future. The second thing that happens is that if a parliamentarian requests a new costing from us during the caretaker period, or even just a changed costing during the caretaker period, it doesn't get covered by confidentiality anymore it is automatically made public and handled in that way. And the, the third thing that happens uh, is that parliamentarians can keep asking us for factual information. Uh, for example, about what estimates contain, and that's a common one, but with a much tighter turnaround time. If we don't have the answer, we need to ask the relevant department or agency and the tighter turnaround times flow onto them. Now, importantly, that work continues but it stays confidential, even though the costings themselves that may be informed um, by that work are public. Mm. So can you elaborate on how the policies are costed and, and how big a team do you have working on this, um, so we're, with this program of work? 
We're a small agency. Um, normally, we're about 40-ish people. Um, we bulk up a little bit to about 50-ish people for an election year, an election period, and that includes people seconded. So, for example, um, we need to second people who can help us uh, keep track of uh, election commitments, whether whoever makes them. We uh, also try and bulk up a little bit to make sure that we can turn around uh, costings requests quickly and information requests quickly, and then simply to produce that big document um, uh, I talked about. When we do a costing, we're doing very much like uh, anyone in government does. We're trying to say that if you change a policy in a particular way against a baseline, which is the government's current baseline, if you change that policy, then the financial implications are whatever they are, whatever they come up with. And we use the data um, that we get from departments and agencies. We use assumptions that we get from um, Treasury uh, on economic assumptions. And we use models. Um, some of those models are models that uh, we also get from departments and agencies, but others are ones we've had to create. And a lot of our work actually goes into the creation or the modification of, mod of models to produce um, particular sets of answers. Mm. And is your operating tempo during the election, does it obviously have more people, but do you work longer hours? Is it, is, is it more demanding during elections for the parliamentary budget office? So the, I would describe, and I haven't been through an election in the parliamentary budget office, but what everyone tells me is, yes, it is quite noticeable, it's quite sharp. So if you look over time, the requests of us spike quite dramatically the closer you get to an election, and then they drop off again afterwards. And so there is a significant change in tempo and, uh, and also a change in expectations around the turnaround time. Now, I'd like to think, as I think this about all, all processes, um, your first job, uh, if you're trying to manage a process, is to get it planned as much as you can, recognising those things that aren't um, within your control, and then try and put in place arrangements, whether that's people with responsibilities or systems, as best as you can, um, to try and smooth the peaks. And that's the way I think about it. An election isn't going to avoid the peaks uh, for an organisation like us, but good planning uh, is something we aim to use in order to smooth the peaks. Okay, sounds like a, a great place to work, and I'm sure I'm sure lots of people will be uh, knocking on your door, seeing if they can be seconded to uh, to work in the parliamentary budget office. Um, but Katrina, if I might come to you, we get through the election. We have a result and there's a new government with new ministers. Um, you've been involved in briefing new governments and supporting new ministers. Can you describe for us the, that process of first preparing for and then briefing uh, an incoming government? Thanks, David, and thanks very much for having me to join the panel here. It's always great to be talking around these kinds of issues. I think there are lots of strands of an incoming government brief process and I think it is important to think about it as a process. Um, it isn't just the production of a document and something you hand over to the government on the first day. It's about setting up the relationship and the dialogue between you, the minister, and their office. And this means that it's important to sort of put yourself in their shoes and the users of the document and the work that you're producing. I guess like all briefing products, it's important that we think about their style and their tone and their format with empathy 
if we want them to have maximum influence and impact. And this means that the documents and the work that you produce during that period is going to look substantially different for different users and for different outcomes. And often we think about it as one, a returning government with the same minister, two, a returning government with a new minister, or three, a new government. And these can be quite substantially different products. And I tend to think about these, the work that you're doing in that process as being in three parts. You know, one of those first parts, which is really important, is the transition to the office. Um, you know, the documents that you produce for that and the work you can do for that include a really wide range of things. You know, this can start from things like, um, you know, accountabilities, key portfolio legislation, to things like organisational charts, you know, who to call, key contacts, and, you know, down to things like proposed templates for correspondence and QTBs. This is really the part that's helping the government get established because as soon as they're sworn in, they're off, they're off and running and you want to get them started off on the best possible foot. Another mm. part of the process, which Stein's already talked about a little bit, is around election commitments. So over the period, you know, parties will make various commitments and policies that they propose to implement if elected. Um, there are often central processes for coordinating the stock of government and um, or election commitments that are proposed to be implemented, but it's important that as a department that we've understood what those commitments are and have put thought into how you would go about implementing those commitments. I think the third part and the third thing we think about a lot is things like policy advice. And, you know, in that section, this covers a range of things from, you know, like the strategic landscape, what's going on in the economy, um, what's going on in, this, in the kind of foreign environment, and, you know, a bunch of policy and implementation advice across a range of portfolio issues. It's a really, really diverse process. Mm. But if you were to pick out sort of some key elements of it that you you must do to be successful, what's that advice that you would give to to people who may be in these roles for the first time to make sure they must deliver in order to be effective in supporting the incoming government? Yeah, I think there's a couple of key things there. I think one, as I said, it's really important to think about that transition to office. Like people have just been through a really significant election campaign. This is about how do you help them get set up and get off on the right foot. Like often when um, after an election we're really excited to talk to people about policy advice and new policy ideas, but one of those key things is to help people get themselves set up, get the office established and get government humming again. That's kind of one of those key roles for the public service. And the other thing I would say is really have a look at election commitments and a good focus on how you would go about implementing those and supporting the government of the day. And clearly there are, you know, the two major um, parties who are largely involved uh, in forming uh, potential uh, government. How much work goes into, you know, both sides of it, uh, either a returning government or a, a new government and understanding um, the policies that have been committed to. Do you do you actually go through two different processes that have, you know, one for, for each eventuality? You absolutely do. Yeah, you've got one for each eventuality. And both of them involve, in, in my experience, sort of an, an equal amount of work. You know, I was really touched by what Peter said before, you know, the idea that during caretaker that you, you, you're off to the coast is sort of most certainly not my experience. It's it's often one of those, one of the busiest periods that you go through in government. It's an exciting period. You know, I'd encourage people to get involved in it. It's a really great opportunity to think about policy, to think about delivery, to think about implementation, but it's most certainly not a quiet period. 
Mm. So, Rena, the public service has a number of important obligations to the parliament and indeed to the Australian people. What are those obligations during the caretaker period and how are they different to the regular op- obligations of the public service during government? Yeah, thanks, David. I mean, as Peter outlined uh, earlier on, the APS still has a role to play um, to support the business of government. So ordinary matters of administration, uh, they're still addressed. What becomes more important for us, I think, is that we need to be um, a lot more careful that we are preserving the apolitical nature of our role. Um, You would know that the uh, APS employees are required under the code of conduct to uphold the value of impartiality at all times. And so that means that in addition to providing high quality professional support, that needs to be irrespective of which political party is in power. And of course, of our own personal political beliefs. We also need to ensure that our actions don't provide grounds for any reasonable person to conclude that we can't serve the government of the day impartially. But apart from that, the world goes on. So, you know, some examples, when grant agreements or contracts have been made, we continue to make payments under those agreements and manage those contracts to make sure that those services are delivered to the Australian people. Um, Specifically in relation to the parliament, annual reports are still tabled. Um, It's just done out of session. And that ensures that the parliament and the public still have visibility of our performance. It's our usual business and so it goes on. Um, I often think it's often more useful to think about caretaker in terms of the things that we don't do or that we need to be very careful in the way that we do them. Um, you know, as others have said, we we don't carry out work that would bind an incoming government to a particular course of action. Doesn't mean we don't, that we stop everything. So we can still work on policy. We just don't provide policy advice to the minister during that time and we don't support any major policy decision making. And, you know, while we might manage existing grants and agreements, uh, we don't enter into major new agreements or contracts during this time. The the split between what we do and don't do isn't always black and white. Um, So all agencies usually go through a process of kind of identifying the activities underway that they may pause, um, or they set up uh, processes within the agency so that when requests come from, uh, you know, from the minister's office, Um, somebody is triaging those requests or just making sure that those requests sort of align with the caretaker conventions. Um, And, you know, if you're ever in doubt, uh, PMNC does have the guidance on caretaker conventions and that provides a really detailed advice about, you know, what what ministers will be doing and what um, ministers won't be doing. Mm, I was about to ask about that in terms of where that guidance is and and how comprehensive is that guidance uh, for people working in, in the public service? I don't want to speak on behalf of PM&C, but I referred to it um, quite a lot. It's it's actually got some really detailed examples. Um, so under each of the headings of the things that the government, um, uh, sorry, that, that the public service may do, uh, it provides some advice on each of those. So I think, I believe it's on the PM&C website. Okay, very good. Um, so people can get to the PMNC website and, and search it up, and I'm sure they'll find it there. So Stein, what expectations and obligations apply when you make information requests during caretaker? Uh, well, thanks, David. And as I said a bit earlier, we have quite a strong and collaborative and set of relationships with the Commonwealth departments and agencies. And quite frankly, an organisation our size simply couldn't function. Uh, without a good sharing of information and without those good relationships. 
But we don't get free reign about all of those things. Agencies do have some ability to specify how the information they provide to us can be used. Um, these arrangements are set out both formally through an MOU and informally through simply people working together over a period of time. And just to give some sense of how common this is, uh, over the last five years, so more than a uh, bit more than one election and, and a few other periods, uh, we've actually uh, received back from departments and agencies something like 2,400 responses to our requests. And 99% uh, of those responses came within the timeframes that we'd asked for and the kind of timeframes we negotiated. So I think it's a very strong relationships, very strong relationship. And in fact, what that shows is most agencies are used to uh, us making information requests outside of the caretaker period. But the interesting thing is when you come into caretaker period, sometimes they double check with us about whether it's appropriate to fulfil them. And for factual information, the answer is yes. For both caretaker costings and preparation of election commitments report, the document we produce, um, legislatively, the head of a Commonwealth agency must provide information that assists with costing commitments. So during the caretaker period, there's often a high number of information requests that come through with much tighter turnarounds because of the duration of caretaker. So whereas Outside caretaker, we might say, could you turn something around in 10 days or five days, depending on, on what the request is. Um, that all cuts down to two days. So, in fact, part of the reason why people in departments stay busy is because we keep asking them <laughs> for things and uh, we ask for them uh, in, in much shorter timeframes than they're used to asking them. Yeah. But, the, but yeah. you, your experience is, well, I suppose, you, as you said, you haven't quite been in this, um, you haven't been through an election cycle yet, but your, your understanding is that the departments are, are gearing up to be able to respond faster as well. Yeah, that's my understanding and uh, my expectation. One advantage, I would say, is uh, of having um, senior and experienced people um, right throughout the public service is that there are people who maybe haven't done as many elections as Peter has in the role that he's done, um, but uh, who have done more than one election and who know what they're talking about and who have been through some of these difficult issues and these matters of judgment. And so they're excellent people to have in any organisation because they help everyone navigate. And a lot of what happens in Caretaker, in my experience, is navigating questions. Hmm. Katrina, if we might just return to you and at that focus on the relationship between the APS and the minister's offices, um, this this period leading up to the election and during that caretaker period, does it change? And if it does change, how does it change? Thanks, David. I guess um, you know I've sat on both sides of the of the fence for a caretaker, and there is a noticeable difference over this period. Now, I think Peter and Rena have already pointed out there are a lot of parts of the public service and the access and the aspects of public administration that don't change. You know, taxes keep getting collected, you know, passports keep getting processed, national parks are open. So a lot of the business of government actually continues. I think the bit that really does change, though, is around the provision of policy advice. And you know, the current advice that, that the caretaker conventions and, and Peter's advice provides is, is that, you know, advice can continue to be provided for government if it's necessary for an ongoing business or it's solely factual. 
And I think that's where Rita sort of alluded to before, you know, those lines can feel a little bit grey and it's important that, um, you know, that that you don't um, suffer in silence, I suppose. You know, there's a lot of processes within departments to help provide support. As Stein said, there's a lot of people who've navigated this before and can help you provide visibility and support for making decisions. A lot of departments will set up things like caretaker working groups. Some of them will have key reporting functions where if you're not exactly sure where you sit on that line, you can go and ask questions. And often if they're not sure, they're going to reach out to PM&C to seek to clarify. So it is definitely different, um, but there are more things that are the same than, than you might think. So in that, is, is it your experience that there is a, a, a lift in volume of requests around around policy of departments during the caretaker period or does it flatten off? In my experience, it flattens off just because that there is a much more limited nature of things that you can do. So you're not going to be providing policy advice or new policy ideas at that point in time. They might provide sort of factual requests for specific pieces of information that you can provide, but the nature of what you can do is quite different. And in my experience, ministers' offices understand that and they know that and they know that fairly well. And so you do see that volume dropping off. But then again, you've got the sort of acceleration of work for your incoming government process. So you'll continue to be just as busy, but doing slightly different things. Mm, great. Hey, Rena, can you talk about how public servants can navigate the issue of involvement in legitimate electoral activity while upholding the expectations of an apolitical service? Yeah, thanks, David. I mentioned before, of course, there is that need for us to uphold that value of impartiality at all times as public servants. But that doesn't mean that we can't that we have to be completely apolitical in our private lives. We're also citizens and we do have a right to participate in political activities outside of work. But we just need to be really careful about how our private behaviour could affect the public's confidence in the impartiality and integrity of the APS as a whole. So if you want to take part in political activities in a private capacity, uh, you just need to consider how your actions might affect the confidence of a reasonable member of the community that the APS remains impartial. Um, the APSC has a guide called the APS Values and Code of Conduct in Practice on our website, and that includes a section called Employees as Citizens. And there's also a great um, tool that we've got, uh, the APS Guidance for Social Media, which is pretty relevant during election campaigns. So these guides include examples of things like whether or not it's okay to display political material in the office, having a role in a political campaign, so for example, handing out how to vote cards, um, and entering into political debates online. You'll often find the answer is quite contextual. So it might depend on your seniority within the agency, the relationship between the activity you're engaged in and the type of work you do, and the nature of the views you're expressing. It's not always black and white, but those guides give some really good, um, you know, they're a really useful tool in helping to navigate that, that situation. And for those who want to go a bit further and actually enter the realm of Parliament, uh, the rules are a little bit different. So for the federal parliament, uh, if you wanted to go, if you wanted to run for federal parliament, you'd actually need to resign from the APS, but you do have a right to be re-engaged. Uh, and there are very different considerations in local, state or territory governments. So it's a really good idea in those situations to speak to your HR area. And in actual fact, in some cases, you might need to get legal advice. 
Um, as I said, it isn't always black and white, um, but those guides that I referenced um, provide situation examples that can help you identify the risks and so you can navigate your way safely through. Hmm. In your experience, do you find that uh, members of the APS talk to each other about these particular judgments that they may have to make about the particular electric, uh, electoral activity they might like to be involved in and, and what sort of one side of the boundary and what might be the other? Or do they rely on the guides and, and the direction from um, from the leadership to to define those lines for them? Look, I think from my experience, the conversation always starts on the floor. So you reach out to your colleagues and friends um, because it's it's part of the, the interest and excitement, I guess, of being a citizen in an election. Um, people often do want to get involved, but they do take very seriously their responsibilities as public servants. And so you'll often find that the, the, the conversation starts in the team uh, and uh, um, most people will refer to those guides that I've, I've talked about or they'll go to their manager or, or to their HR area. So, I mean, my advice is because it is contextual, um, it's good to get some advice. The guides are good, um, but they don't cover every situation. What they're aiming to do is provide you with a tool that you can assess the risks of your behaviour against, you know, the the risk that you may be perceived as uh, being impartial or there may be a conflict of interest. Uh, and you can make a decision, but uh, your manager is probably a really good place to start. And then if you need to, um, escalating to your HR area. Mm. Okay, thanks for that. Peter, what advice, um, having been around as long as you've been around and been involved in, uh, as you say, five elections, what advice might you offer people who haven't been involved in elections? Obviously, there's turnover of staff into the APS. Um, you know, what advice would you give them as they as they start to think about how they will contribute through this period? David, I think um, my colleagues have already um, started by giving a bit of a free advertisement for the PMNC's guidance on caretaker conventions, um, which is on the PMNC website. Um, look, that's a that's a great resource, and and for many public servants, that's a good place to start. Um, I'll, I'll return the favour to Rena and say I think that the APSC guidance um, is is excellent. The, the um, values and code of conduct in practice is a really good go to for for people to understand how to um, how to follow the rules and put them into practice. And as Stein said, you know, it's really important to to go talk to the people who have been there before. Speak to the experienced hands in your agency um, and have those conversations so that you get to know um, what the right thing is to do. But 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 importantly, um, it's it's not it's not black and white. Um, the things that you should and shouldn't do during a, an election period um, on any of those fronts, there's it's going to take um, a lot of judgment and mostly common sense. Um, so, um, what we try to do in PMNC is set up um, uh, a bit of a hotline for people to come to if they need some help to get through the application of the caretaker conventions in their particular circumstances. Um, we try and avoid having 150,000 odd public servants across the Commonwealth all ringing the um, same caretaker hotline. Um, so what we encourage is for, for portfolio departments to set up a small team of senior officers that act as a kind of triage um, for any caretaker or election um, challenges and questions that might come up during that time. Um, and, and then for those uh, key people in each agency 
to be in touch with PMC if they've got something that uh, is um, is even trickier than they, than they feel confident to deal with. Um, and that generally works pretty well. I mean, yes, there, there are some tricky situations that come up during a, an election period. That's inevitable. Um, so people will have dilemmas. Um, but uh, the, 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 we always get through the other side eventually. Hmm. So in terms then of this period, because it's, you know, the, the election is the is the culmination of this wonderful system of government we have of democracy. And there's often, you know, a lot of joy, um, you know, as we celebrate this particular, you know, our system of government. Does that, um, does it translate into the APS? And this is a question to all of you. Is there that sense of excitement and, you uh, uh, you know, the culmination, I suppose, of a, of a period of time where, you know, maybe the government, maybe the country's going to change, maybe it's not going to change. Does that sort of excite, excitement sort of reach into the APS and do people get excited about elections? Peter, I'll, I'll start with you. I, I get excited about elections. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yes, but, you know, that's that, that's kind of, it's a core part of core part of our job um, to support that um, election process um, it, as you say it is it is a pretty it's a very important part of the way our government works and and we should reflect on the fact as public servants we should be reflecting on the fact that this is the way uh, not not how our government changes but it's how we actually maintain the continuity of government um, it government it keeps on going through the caretaker period because of the caretaker conventions. And even when there is a change of government, it's a seamless change um, of government. And um, it, I think that's a, a, a remarkable thing and should be celebrated. Mm. What about for you, Katrina? Do you, do you get caught up in it at all or are you just heads down trying to deliver? I think you do get caught up, but up in it, but in a good way. Like I, I really sort of reflect on what Peter said. It, it is an exciting time. You know, the incoming government briefing process is a really different period once you're in that caretaker mode. And I think there's lots of opportunities to look at different aspects of your role, different aspects of your work, and you know, engage sort of different parts of you, particularly for those in policy advice. Um, when you're working through the incoming government briefing process, it, it's a you know, it's a really exciting time. I think it's great. And what about you, Stein? You'd probably be exhausted by the the time this is all over. I'm sure there's plenty of people in that that boat. We've got to remember that uh, uh, for the Australian Electoral Commission, for example, to run um, an election, it's one of the greatest mobilisations in peacetime of of people across Australia and it happens every three years and it delivers a fundamentally important part of of our democracy. So I, I think in election period... It's, uh, it's a really important time to remember why we do the jobs we do and uh, often why people were attracted to working in these sorts of jobs in the first place. They wanted to be part of uh, a big system, uh, a dem- big democratic, democratic system that delivers for the people of Australia and nothing brings that home more than election time. Mm. And Rena, what about you? Look, I think my colleagues have sort of summed up uh, my experience and I don't mean to be flippant, but I think there's also the anticipation of uh, the sausage sizzle or the vegetarian equivalent uh, when you're not under COVID restrictions. Uh, I'm going to share a little story that when Stein and I worked together, we found a website 
that had uh, all of the uh, places you could go to poll, but you could look up which sort of um, snacks they had, whether it was vegetarian <laughs> or, or otherwise. <laughs> now, listen, we do um, a feature of the podcast as we hear from the future leaders of IPA, and we have a question from uh, one of the committee members, Anthony Pronin, who works at the National Indigenous Australians Agency. And he asks, once the caretaker period starts, public servants need to provide external stakeholders with information about the caretaker conventions and the limitations on the current engagements. How can these interactions be used to maintain relationships and build trust? I'll throw that one to you to to start, Peter. It's a tricky one because I think we do need to be careful in our stakeholder relationships during the caretaker period that we don't you know, overcomplicate things. Um, as I said earlier, the, the the caretaker thing mostly applies to the relationship between ministers and their officers and uh, public servants in departments. So public servants should be able to maintain community stakeholder relationships um, through that period without any complication. There will be some circumstances where, yes, it will be necessary to explain that, for instance, I'm not going to be able to provide policy advice to the minister until the other side of the election period. Um, There might be um, circumstances where you're dealing with a tender process or a a contractual process or something where you have to explain similarly that maybe the process will be deferred or or, um, or, or slowed down a bit in order to to get through that period. But um, uh, you should be able to continue to maintain your stakeholder stakeholder relationships during during a, a caretaker period by and large. So listen, um, Stein, Peter, Rena, and Katrina, uh, we promised a lot and you delivered. Thanks a lot for the conversation today. It's, it is an important conversation because often there are many people who do join the APS between elections and they won't have had the benefit or the experience that you've shared with us today. And I think it'd be very valuable for them to reflect on the advice and guidance that you've given us today. So um, on behalf of the audience, uh, thank you for your uh, time today. Much appreciated. And a big thanks to you, the audience, for giving up some of your time and attention to listen to today's important conversation. We certainly appreciate it. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, which I strongly suggest that you do, you will find it by typing the name into any of your favourite podcast app catches, and it will be delivered to you on your phone. If you do happen to see the social media promotion for this episode in your feeds, a like or a share helps. And if you do have time for a rating or a review, that also certainly helps the podcast to be discovered. Thanks once again to our great partners at IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission who are so supportive in making these conversations happen, and also to the team at Content Group who play a key role in producing the program each fortnight. I'm David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. We'll be back at the same time in a fortnight, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.